Fred Jones, who was a retired World War II vet, civil servant, dirty man, always had a good dirty joke. Helen Moses found the second love of her life in a nursing home with a man named Howie Zimmer. Ping Wong played Mahjong every day with the same three women in her building. John Sorensen, gay man who lost his partner of 60 years, said every time we got together that he wanted to die. Ruth Willig had to move out of her assisted living building when the owner decided to sell it for condos. I believe that's five. And the sixth is Jonas Mekis, who was one of the great Lithuanian poets and then a, a pioneer of avant-garde cinema in the U.S. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is John Leland author of Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. John is a reporter at the New York Times, where he wrote a year-long series that became the basis for this book. Before joining the Times, he was a senior editor at Newsweek, editor-in-chief of Details Magazine, a reporter at Newsday, and a writer and editor at Spin. So in this interview, we explore research and people's experience that confirms that older people are in fact happier than younger people why that is, how it happens, how we can be sure it happens for us as we get older. John opens his book with this beautiful epigraph, a quote by David Bowie saying, aging is an extraordinary process whereby you become the person you always should have been. We talk about how our perspectives shift as we age, a fairly high profile failure that John had early in his career when he was fired from his dream job, what that was like and what he learned from it. We also go deep into the craft of writing. John shares some of his experience and his wisdom as someone who has been working in this industry with fairly great success in the aggregate over a period of many decades. I will just share this. I love this book, Happiness is a Choice You Make. I love learning about the oldest old, the people who are at the top of the age pyramid in our society. I love his description that the people he profiled in this book who are in some ways very representative of people in our lives or people we pass by on the street every day, that these are people that are easy to overlook. But with any luck, these people someday will be us. So this book was like a gift learning what I have to look forward to. I think if you pick it up, you really enjoy it. And I hope you listen to this interview and you also enjoy it and you take away some things that will help you to live and age well. John, welcome to the School for Good Living. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to connect. John, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Life is about figuring out what life is about, I think. I, you know, I really think that I've come to uh, some thoughts about this. 
And I think that life is certainly about living well and spending as much of the time as we can and as much of our energy as we can in those matters that we have in our lives that are important to us. So I make it very, very broad. I don't think that life is about necessarily being a, this kind of service to others or that kind of service to others, but we all have things that we understand that matter to us. And we all spend heinous parts of our day not in that zone, or we're not we're not spending time with the people we care about, the people that nourish us. We're not spending our time doing activities that, that we care about or that nourish us. So I think life is about finding a way to get to that point where we're spending our time, our energy on the things and with the people that matter to us. Well, thank you for that, for that answer. I love that answer, and it resonates with me. One thought that comes up for me, though, is isn't that selfish? Is it selfish? course it's a little selfish but it all depends on what those things are if you're if what really matters to you is that that hotshot sports car right mm -hmm. there's nothing that that that's of service to anybody in that but i think for most of us what what really matters to us is not that and when when we get that hotshot sports car that we really wanted we find that it's maybe not quite as fulfilling as as we wanted uh, as, as we hoped it would be or else we're really shallow. And that's really that amazing thing. But yeah. I think it's not usually that. I think that usually what we find that matters to us is in some ways involving other people. Yeah, that's that's right? my experience. And sure. it involves a, a gratitude, a level of gratitude with them. It involves, I think, a sense of being useful to other people. And it involves having some sense of purpose. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. And interesting that you use the example of the sports car because about 10 years ago, I bought a Ferrari thinking that it would save my marriage. I thought, oh, it's a two-seater. It's adventurous. I know many people think, oh, I'll have another kid. That'll save the marriage. I did that too. Neither one of which <laughs> saved the marriage. But what you're saying now about a purpose involving service to others, absolutely. On my journey, you know, personally and with the people I work with as a coach, that, that really uh, rings true. But let me ask you specifically, let me turn the conversation to your, your latest book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. I love this book, and I just want to share with you that I read sections of this aloud to my wife. I'm married again, happily married. And I read especially the love story between Helen and Howie. And oh. I understand she just passed. She died a couple of days ago, yeah. But that, oh man, it's a touching book. And there's so much I want to get into. Well, let me start with this. For people listening, if you'll please share, what is this book about? Why did you write it? Well, I'm a reporter at the New York Times, and I set out to write a year-long series on people age 85 and up. Why them? Because uh, according to the census, that's one of the fastest growing groups in the, in the country. So I wanted to do a series about them, and I thought, like, what what is old age about? And I thought, well, old age is about losing your memory and losing your fine, beautiful skin and, you know, losing your partner and losing your sense of, of uh, functionality in the world. And I, said, and I thought I would do that. And then I realized I knew what those stories were and I knew how they went. And I didn't even need to have old people to do those stories. So just sort of almost fell off the truck. We decided I would just follow these six people for a year and let their lives dictate what the stories were. So for, let me ju jump in for a moment right there, because I hear you say it just sort of fell off the truck. However, I understand that it took you and your editor, Amy, about a year 
of kicking this idea around to figure out that this would be the way you would pursue this project? Oh, yeah. I had to sort of go through all my ideas for these Malady of the Month stories because that's how we write about old age, right? Yeah. We, Everything we, we lose. Go. It's just about loss. Yeah. It's just about, it's just about what old age looks like through the prism of youth. Mm-hmm. I look at myself at, you know, my future self at 90 and think, oh, there's nothing good, you know those changes are all for the worse, but that's because I'm looking at it through the, the prism of a 60 year old looking at it at 90, it might look entirely different and 60 wouldn't be a, a valuable benchmark. So I wanted to get a, some sense of what 85 or 90 or 92 or 95 look like to the real experts, the people who are living it. Cause those are the people we don't ask. We ask the gerontologists, we ask their kids, we ask all these other people who have never been old. You know, this is like, you know, asking me what it's like to be fabulously rich because I've never been fabulously rich or asking somebody who's never eaten Italian food, what's Italian food like? So we know better than to do that. But with with aging, somehow it's okay. We'll ask the gerontologist, what's it like to be aging? What's What's it like to start to lose your memory? What's it like to when you can't get around the way you used to? And so, you know, almost by accident, as I said, I we kind of stumbled into this. I started asking these people who really were the experts, and it turned out that it it looked kind of different to them. How did your perspective, so I want to understand that, how it looked different to them, and and, and specifically, I want to start with this question, how did your perspective of what it means or what it's like to get old change in the course of writing or even researching this book? Uh, Well, it took a long time, and I I think you're correct when when you say it, in, in the writing of it, because it, it took me a long time to process what I was getting out of them. As I said, I followed them for a year for the newspaper series. And, and by the way, sorry, sorry to jump in there, but when you say you followed them, I mean, I know because I've read the book that that's spending lots of time in their homes, in the care centers, right? But when you say you followed them for a year, will you describe what that's like? Oh, they were so generous with their time. And I would just visit them and spend time with them and talk about whatever it was they wanted to talk about that day. I didn't have a real agenda. As once I said, as I mentioned, once I gave up that idea that I was just going to write about, you know, what it's like to lose your memory, what it's like to fall and break your hip, and I was going to write about what it looked like to them, I went into my interviews with them just open, open-minded. open What is it you want to talk about? What's going on in your life right now? What did you do today? What do you look forward to? What makes life worth living? What would make it no longer so? And I could ask them anything. It was a great thing. They were very open with me. And there were kind of no holds barred or few holds barred. And, you know, I it just slowly started to dawn on me that the way I'd gone about it was, was wrong. The way I'd thought about this going into it was just my own perspective. And my own perspective just wasn't that valuable. And so... Once you, it was it was a humbling thing, but as we know, like humility is really where learning begins, right? We can accept that we don't know, and until we accept that we don't know, we can't learn anything. But once I accepted that I I didn't know, and I could let them tell me, a it was a lot less pressure on me because I didn't have to be the expert anymore, and b they had a turned out they had a lot to tell me. Yeah. So okay, let me go back to how your perspective on what it means to be old shifted in the course of this, or at the very least, maybe if it's not even a comparison of what it was like before and what it's like at the end, but 
what did you learn? I mean, what I know there's so much to take away from this book, which is why I think so many people would benefit from reading it. But what did you personally, how did it change you? What did you take away? Well, as I said, I, I, I thought it was going to be about loss because that's what I thought old age was about, yeah. loss. Yeah. And, you know, as I spent time with people, and I should probably name the people in the book. I feel like I've, I've talked about me all this time. But the people in the book were Fred Jones, who was a World War II veteran, and John Sorensen, who was a gay man who'd lost his partner of 60 years, and Ruth Willig, who'd had to move out of her assisted living building because the owner wanted to sell it for condos, and Helen Moses, who met her the second love of her life in a nursing home. She's the one who just died, sadly. Ping Wong, who was just this incredibly resourceful woman who played Mahjong every day with the same three women in her building. And Jonas Mekas, who was the one ringer in the bunch. He was actually, you know, somebody I knew about going in, who was really one of the pioneers of, I don't want to call it experimental cinema because Jonas hated that word, but what he called poetic cinema in this country, avant-garde cinema. So those were the six. How did you choose the six? Oh, it's the most fun part of everything. And I always get asked this and I, and I love it. I just spent a couple months meeting as many people as I could. And I went to like senior centers and nursing homes and assisted living buildings, talked to friends of friends, and public libraries and book groups, because there's usually a lot of older people in these. And I just started talking to people, anybody who would talk to me. I knew I wanted someone who was foreign born because in New York City, which is where I was writing about, the older population is, is foreign-born, tends to be foreign-born. And I knew I wanted somebody who had found love late in life, because I, I didn't know that story. I know the couple who stayed married for 60 years, but the couple who met in a nursing home or in their 90s and had the courage to love each other, knowing that you probably couldn't do so for long and that one of you would watch the other one go, that was something I didn't know. I didn't understand it. That's the kind of courage that I don't quite get. And then I picked Jonas because he was a ringer. and I knew he was a good talker. And if I was going to spend a year with people, somebody would be a great talker. I also, I had tried to find somebody with mild dementia who was competent to consent to, to the questions I would ask and who I felt sure would, would still be there at the end of a year. And, and that was just too hard a task to, to come up with. Mm. So... So I, I didn't get that. But I did have people of different races and classes, sexual orientations, different living situations from a nursing home to Jonas lived in a loft in a hipster neighborhood. Wow. You know what? This book, one of the things that it did for me and, and one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it validated a belief I have, which it's always nice when that happens, <laughs> confirmation bias. But, but the, what the belief is, is that every life or any life is interesting when it's understood up close. And this book where you profile, you know, these these elders to understand not just where they are in life now, but how they got there and what their beliefs are, you know, in their personal history and their their relationships that either exist or you know, were from the past which still exist in some way. And I was really moved. I felt it was a gift to be able to see up close, you know, people especially near the end of their life where they're just sharing so honestly and uh, is very touching. They're ordinary people. They're the people we look past in our daily life. We see them anywhere. And I had this, I mentioned Ruth Willig before who had to move out of her building 
because the owner wanted to sell it. She was really unhappy in the new place that, that she was. And she said, oh, the people aren't interesting. And then she went to like a memoir writing class in the group and she started to meet some of the people. And she says, you know, someone's 92 years old. They've done interesting things in their lives. And I thought Ruth put that so well. So I, I like quoting her on that so I can attribute it to her. That's great. That's great. Okay, a few things I want to ask you about in particular. One, I do want to ask you about Jonas. So Jonas, who was this poetic filmmaker and a, a very creative, <laughs> seems like a very dynamic person. You talk in the book about a project that he began in 2015 to raise some funds for... Anthology Film Archives. Yeah, the Anthology Film Archives. And I thought this was amazing. I think if, if I understood right, he was 91 years old when he undertook this. Mm-hmm. And his intention was to, maybe you can talk about this, but basically he knew at 91 years old that this was not going to be a brief timeline. This would be a year at least, and it might be as much as $6 million was required to raise the funds for this. And what? And so specifically the thread that I'm wondering if you'll kind of, as you share, if you will, is about the purpose that he followed and the difference that that might have made for him and by extension a lesson that might be available to any of us. Does does that count as a question? <laughs> I think it does. Well, Jonas in the late 1970s had started this independent theater called the Anthology Film Archives with the idea that they would be a repository for all things film, that we have great museums for the visual arts, for, for painting, we have great museums for, for photography or sculpture, but we don't have a great museum for film. And, and he would do that. And he gathered some things over the years. He was a great pack rat. He had like the shooting script from Citizen Kane. Wow. So he had some things that were really valuable. And then he would have, you know, that independent film from Hungary that six people saw and he would have a 16 millimeter print of that. So he had really great stuff. But as that thing that we call video caught on, there was less interest, less and less interest in people coming to a theater to see these things projected upon a screen because they could get them in all sorts of ways. So the theater has run on a shoestring for, for years and Jonas really wanted to establish it so it would survive him. And he had great support from people like Greta Gerwig and Patti Smith and Jim Jarmusch and uh, other people from the film community Laurie Anderson. I'm trying to think of who else. John Waters. John Waters was yes. Oh, John Waters, so funny. But so yes, they were all they were supporters of him. So he just said, "I'm going to try to raise all this money," and he set about doing it. Every year, he would get a million dollars closer, and the yardsticks would get two million dollars away. So he started off needing to raise like three million dollars, and he had a, a a backer who would match that, so that would give him six million. And then the next year, he had raised $4 million, but now it was going to cost $12 million to do it. So it just kept moving. And he was tireless in this. He, would, he had been, I think, tireless in his life in operating this, this theater and, and setting it up and really being helpful to all the photographers, always all the filmmakers. If he had $10, he would give five of it to some starving filmmaker. So he had done that all his life. And that's how he was going to live. And so Jonas never woke up seeing, thinking, what's the point of my life today? Well, you know, I can't do the things I used to do. What's my purpose now? Jonas woke up every day with a sense of purpose, this, that a sense that what he did made a difference. 
that call that he makes, you should call somebody that's going to make a difference. And I think he, that extended to the rest of his life. So if somebody needed somebody to just call and say, hey, how are you doing? You okay? You know, Jonas would, be, would do that. We all know people like that, and we don't make that call, right? Yeah. But Jonas made that call because he woke up every day feeling that what he did had a sense of purpose and had meaning. So he would do that. It just, it, it's what kept, kept him going. I thought that was so magnificent to have a personal example of that at that age. And I thought about something I heard once about some people when they retire. Well, first of all, that some people retire and some people don't. Where I think it's interesting even to talk to people and learn about their plans for the future, whether that's a concept, you know, in their thinking for themselves, retirement. And then the other aspect of if people retire, the difference in people who retire away from something, away from that job or that career they've had versus people who retire towards something. Maybe they're inventing, reinventing themselves in some service capacity or some creative role. And I just love to see, you know, that Jonas was so alive, you know, all the way into the 90s. That's fantastic. You know, he would have never thought about retiring because he never thought of what he did as working. And he was so interesting about this. He grew up in a farm in Lithuania where you just did stuff. You're, that was your life. It wasn't like there was work and there was play. You, they were both intertwined, right? Yeah. So he never thought that writing poetry was work. It was just, it was just living. It was breathing or making films was just looking at things. So he never thought about what he did as work. And then he said, when the Soviets invaded, they had they, they created the idea of work <laughs> in, in Lithuania. And, and so he never thought about the idea of like going to a vaca- going to a beach and vegging out on vacation. That had no interest to him because he liked what he did. And they would, we would never retire from it because it would be like retiring from eating. Yeah. And, and it brings to mind for me that saying, I think it's attributed to Emerson about if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Kind That's of thing. a great one. I, yeah. I don't, didn't know that, but fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to use that tomorrow, I think. Awesome. And the other thing, I believe it was Jonas's advice about if someone wants to be a filmmaker, what advice would you give them? Oh, fantastic. Will you talk Can about that? So if someone wants to be a filmmaker, so someone asked Jonas, if I want to be a filmmaker, what should I do? And he said... Get a camera. <laughs> it's so obvious. And it's such a perfect line. And I, you know, it seems like a throwaway, right? Just a smart aleck guy. But Jonas was a pack rat. He never threw anything away. So what does that mean, get a camera? It means that all these, living is living in the present with what we have right now, right? It's not, once I get that degree in filmmaking, then I can be a filmmaker. Or once I get over this cold, then I can go about having my life being good. Once this happens, then I start living. If all that's in the way is getting a camera, then then you are already a filmmaker. You just need to, you know, surround yourself with the tools that, that allow you to, to do that. So I, th- I think it's about living in the present and not letting these artificial, what are the yardsticks or hurdles that we need to get over, hold us back. Yeah. I love also, near the end of the book, that you share a couple things. One about a friend of yours, Robert Moss, and his philosophy, how he was able to accomplish so much in his life. You quote him as saying, I never thought about what would happen if it rained. And then you go on to say, he didn't get paralyzed by things that hadn't happened yet, and he learned by necessity how much he could accomplish even when it was raining. 
Yeah, Bob had started a, an important theater company in New York, Playwrights Horizons, in like a YWCA in Times Square for $6. And he put on, I know Larry Kramer's first plays was one of his first plays. You know, he just, there was nothing could hold, hold Robert back. And he lives that to this day. I, I think that's a beautiful perspective. And it, it makes me think, I think it's the same sentiment behind something I once heard Tony Robbins say when he said that faith is the imagination directed, where fear is the imagination undirected. And Bob, it sounds like he was directing his imagination toward, you know, or he wasn't focusing on what would happen if it rained or what would happen if things went wrong, but instead on what he wanted or what was possible. That's, that's really beautiful. Uh, that's so great. The Tony Robbins quote is really great. You know, I often think years ago, I had kind of a fancy job in journalism and I was able to hang on to it for about eight months and then I got fired. It seemed like that was the worst thing that could happen to me. You know, you, you've succeeded at everything up until this point and then you fail at something. And not only do you fail at it, but you fail at it pretty publicly and everybody knows you did. The further I got from it, the more I realized that that was just the best thing that happened to me. Understanding that Failure is one of the things we're going to do in life and, and not to be afraid of it. And just to embrace that idea that, that, that we are going to fail. We are going to experience setbacks in life. We are going to experience loss. And those aren't aberrations in our life. They are our life. They're just part of our life. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that as well, quoting character. And I understand you also wrote a book on Kerouac. But I love you quote the character in the book, Dean Moriarty. Dean Mor, how do you say that? Moriarty? Moriarty. <laughs> Moriarty. Saying, troubles, you see, is a generalization word for what God exists in. The thing is to not get hung up. Don't get hung up. Yeah. Well, on that topic, was this at Spin? Was that the thing or was this somewhere else? Somewhere else. So will you tell, just since you brought it up, <laughs> will you talk a little bit about, I mean, what you call a failure. I have this theory that failures don't exist. It's just opportunities for learning and growth. But... That's a pretty strong word. But at any rate, I think people listening, especially because you are accomplished, you're a very accomplished author and journalist, and people might be going, wow, somebody can fail and still succeed in these many other dimensions. Would you be willing to share a bit, you know, the story about the failure and maybe the lessons that are associated with it? Oh, I, I guess so. Why not? I barely talk about this, but it's long enough in the past that I can do so. I was, uh, well, let's, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. You know, I, I, was one of those people who just always liked to write, always liked music, and I started off as a music critic out of college, like painting houses and proofreading and doing all these things to make the bills and writing occasionally for music. And where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey and moved to New York to go to college. Hmm. And at some point, I guess around my 30s, a friend of mine started a magazine called Details with the publishing company Condé Nast. These are, these are like terms from the past like they were once like General Motors or something. There were things that like brands that once had some meaning and now they don't quite anymore. And when when he left that the magazine, I succeeded him. And it was it was kind of my it was what I'd always wanted. I'd always wanted to have my own magazine. And and what's the role here? Publisher, editor in chief? What I was editor in chief. No, it's just called the editor. They didn't use editor. The okay. But I was the editor of the magazine. So I'd always wanted my own magazine. I'd always thought, this is the fulfilling thing. You get everybody to do the things you want them to do. And how old are you now? Thir late 30s? Mid 30s. Mid 30s. 30, okay. 33, 34, I, I think. It, I get a little confused about this. Yeah. But 
I was not good at it. And it quickly became apparent to the people who ran the company and, and I was fired. What parts weren't you good at? Like finance, managing people, project management? Managing people. Okay. Okay. I, you know, it's, it's actually it was a tremendously good learning experience because when I watch bad managers, I'm able to see, oh, yeah, she's doing the thing I did or he's doing the thing I did. <laughs> yeah, it's always easier to see in other people, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now that I, I, I'm able to understand it in myself, I'm able to see it in others as well and feel a little empathy for them when they're screwing up. Yeah. So I get home. I'm, you know, I'm fired. I get home. I'm, I'm fired from my dream job, right? I mean, written about in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journals, this guy who failed at this job, famous flame out. I get home that first day, I'm fired, and I think, I'm still the same person I was. I still have all the things that matter to me. This job was never my identity. It was always my job, and I still have that, and I'm going to go on with life. And I'm not, to say, not saying it didn't hurt. It hurt. Somebody tells you you're not good at this job, and they'll pay you a lot of money to go away. That hurts. Yeah. You know, it's been kind of the best thing for me because it makes, A, as I mentioned before, it makes me no longer afraid of failure to the extent that I was. And B, it helps me understand that I am not my job. Beautiful, beautiful perspectives. That actually is one of the things I really like about happiness as a choice is that your voice does come through in places where you share really honestly about what was going on in your life or what was in your past about your marriage at the time and things like that. I wonder, because I didn't go back to read the original articles in the Times, mm -hmm. did you share that personally in the articles or was that something that you introduced once it became a book? They're really different. The articles are my attempt to get at what life at that age looks like to the people who are living it. And then yeah. the book is more about adding what I learned from them and the ways that I was changed by my time with them. Because it really was a really a life-changing experience, which is not what I set out to do at all. Yeah. What kind of feedback have you gotten about sharing so honestly? Where I know a lot of your journalism is what I would consider traditional journalism. It's about the subject. It's about you know society and the impact and what current events, what's going on. Where this book, I didn't read the book Hip. And Hip was not the book about Kerouac, is it? No, it's, he's part of it, but he appears in it, but no, it's yes. just about the idea of hip. Okay, so I didn't, read, I didn't read the other two, but where I'm trying to go with this whole thing is asking, you know, what was your experience after this book was published? Because it sounds like it was pretty different from a lot of what you had published previously in terms of sharing personally. I have really liked to be analytical in my previous books, and this book was going to be something very, very different from that. It was going to be very emotional, and I felt that if I was going to ask people to be kind of as naked and vulnerable as they were, and they really were, that I had to put myself in it too. I had to put my relationship with my mother in it. And since I was going through a divorce at this time, I should be uh, a little bit forthcoming about that. There's not a lot about my divorce in there. My favorite conversation that I've done in this, if I can use a little bit of a salty word here, I mentioned that an argument I had with my wife and she said, no, the problem is this. And so I did a, a discussion with a friend of mine in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Public Library out in the open. She says, so John, this is what she says. Is it true? Were you an asshole? <laughs> what man can answer that with anything other than yes? Uh, not I, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Of course. I said, you know, we both were. We were moved by, by anger and, and selfishness. And of course I was. Yeah. Well, again, just I know I've said this version of this. I really 
appreciated that and enjoyed it. And I like getting to know you a little bit through that. I like even the little touch of where you changed a light bulb and acknowledged changing a light bulb for this subject for whom I'm writing about is a breach of journalistic you know, ethics, but I think it's okay <laughs> kind of thing. I wrote about, I did a separate article on doing that in the, in the Times, and I got such great feedback from many of the readers and a little bit of like, what kind of jerk are you that you had to think twice about changing a light bulb? <laughs> it's, it's a man, Fred Jones, who I, I mentioned at the top of this. Fred was, Fred was so much fun to visit. Fred was like the classic dirty man. You know, he had a dirty joke. He wanted me to fix him up with the real fine chicks that I knew. You know, Fred was that guy. And he was in the dark one day. I get there and he just, he can no longer get up and change his light bulbs. And for a journalist, that's like the perfect scenario. It's like, I'm writing about the problems of old age and here's a guy who can't change his light bulbs. He's in the dark. And I think had I just met Fred and this was always going to be our life together, just this one hour we're going to spend together. Maybe that's what I would have done. But by that time, we had a long relationship. And I'm like, I cannot leave this man in the dark. But I'm not supposed to do that. You know, journalists are supposed to report the news, not make the news. And I'm not supposed to change his environment. But I figured people would forgive me. But I thought if I did it, I would have to tell the readers about it. I thought it was fun. I thought your self-awareness and just learning about you know, journalism, where I didn't know that. I mean, the world, the world changes. And I think what's so beautiful to me about it is how human it is. I mean, Fred, Fred was a special guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get all misty at thinking about this because Fred's died. Now I, the book is about six people, and, and when with Helen's death, five of them are gone. Is it, is it Ping that's left? No, Ruth Willig is left. Ruth. Wow. Ping died the day before Thanksgiving, so the two Ping and, and Helen died within two weeks of each other. Wow. Okay, so other questions that I want to be sure to ask you before we switch gears here. I want to ask about this. I, th- I thought what you shared near the end, kind of in the conclusion of the book, is you know, you make this statement as you're kind of speaking to the reader. The good things in life, happiness, purpose, contentment, companionship, beauty, and love, have been there all along. We don't need to earn them. Good food, friends, art, Warmth, worth, these are the things we have already. We just need to choose them as our lives. Well, I understand that there are people in life that don't have all those things. And and I don't mean to be callous about that. But they have other things. Most of us have the things that make us happy are available to us in some ways. Maybe not all of them. Maybe we don't have all the things. Maybe you really want to be out there playing tennis and you can't play tennis anymore. I, I understand that. But if you choose to define your life by tennis and your inability to play it now, you're going to be miserable. If you choose that what's meaningful in life is that visit with that old friend that you've known for 50 years, that's available to you. And if you define your life by that, you're choosing to be happy. The point is that like that, it's not the circumstances that make us happy. Circumstances go up and down. Sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it rains. But that sense that we're living for the things that matter to us is available to us all the time. I think that's such a wonderful view, especially because it was written by someone, by you, who also share a little earlier that you say, I've spent too much of my life seeing the glass as not only half empty, but a crappy excuse for a glass. (laughs) And so I thought for one person to, to have both views at some point in the same life, 
It was really wonderful. And, and I should point out that when I see that glass that way, what I'm experiencing is not depression. And I understand that people do experience depression. And you can't fight depression by changing your attitude anywhere, any more than you could fight cancer by changing your attitude. Depression is a serious, deadly illness, and it needs to be treated as, as such by professionals. I mean that the area that we are able to play with. We have such great latitude over our lives if we can see that. Yeah. Okay. I definitely want to be sure to ask you about longevity, your thoughts about longevity science, right? And, and somebody, I'll just frame this a little by someone once pointed out to me that if you look at what's going on in the world when it comes to innovation and technology and even scientific research, that really the the grand challenges beyond even global warming are and of course if we don't if we don't uh, deal with this global warming thing these other things won't matter but but for humanity maybe that grand problems and i'm simplifying i'm ignoring the sustainable development goals and things like that but anyway i'm i'm rambling but these two things of happiness and longevity that if we could like write some computer code or find a chemical that would you know provide us unlimited amounts of happiness and limitless lifespan. What could be more significant than that? So with that, with all of your research and firsthand experience, you know, living among the oldest of the old, what are your thoughts now about longevity science? It's not the question that that keeps me up at night. How long we're going to live? I it seems like it's it just seems secondary to me. How can we make this conversation I'm having with you as meaningful as possible. That's something that we do have some control over because if I'm going to live to 120, what I'm just going to be, when I have this conversation with you, I'm going to be thinking about what I'm going to eat for dinner or is this going to be over soon? What's the point of living to 120? If I can have this conversation and really be thinking about you and, and trying to have some sort of connection with you as meaningful as possible, you know that, that to me matters more than how many seconds I'm going to be alive on earth what I make of this second and then the next second and then the next second. Yeah, I get, I get that. I, because I, that's just trying not to die. I, you yeah. know, I, that does not seem to be the same as living to me. That's a great point. And I heard a phrase or similar thought phrased once that a full life is better than a long life. Yeah. yeah. They so, shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but yeah, that's, I would put more, more stake into a full life. Yeah, I could see that. I would also add that a full life is possible when we've had losses in our life, when we can't do some of the things we used to do, when our brains don't fire as quickly as they used to, when our bodies don't move us the way we used to, we're still 100% capable of having a full life. Yeah, and there's some research that you cite in there about, and I don't have it right at my fingertips, and I'm not sure how well you recall, but it was, again, asking people who were not themselves elderly to predict what the life satisfaction would be for people who were elderly but had lost some of their capabilities, their physical ability or maybe their mental or cognitive capability. And then they asked people who were in that circumstance. Do you do you remember this well enough to speak to it? Yeah, it's great. It's the British Mental Health Foundation. They did a study of dementia, quality of life and dementia. And I think they ended up calling it, my name is not dementia. And they asked people with some level of cognitive loss about their quality of life. And they asked their I think it's the healthcare proxies, which is, I imagine, their children, you know, about dad's quality of life. And in all the instances, it's a small study, so it's not dispositive, but 
consistently the healthcare proxies, the kids thought dad's life was really bad and getting worse. And, and dad thought that his life or mom thought that her life was not so bad. And what was really interesting was that as the disease progressed, the people who had it maintained that same sense of their quality of life, whereas their healthcare proxies just thought they were falling off a cliff. That's so interesting to me about how we really, it seems, we really can't predict with any certainty the quality or perhaps even the fact of another's experience. Yeah, so now there's this movement towards doing dementia directives, end-of-life dementia directives. If I lose this level of mental capacity, uh, you know, withdraw health care treatment for me. But we don't really know what it's going to be like when we get there. Yeah. Well, and if it's not too personal, you share a bit about your father's end and how you might have treated that differently. Would you be willing to, to share that a bit? We couldn't stand the idea that our father would die. And so we felt that he should stay alive as, as long as possible. My father had a heart condition and towards the end of his life in his mid-80s, everything started to fail at once. He's failed cognitively, his kidneys failed, his liver failed, you know, the lungs went down. It was all this kind of cascading <clears throat> healthcare failure. And he's, he's in the hospital and our idea is the kids, my brothers and I, we're, we're like, all we want is dad to get better. He's going to get better at that. You know, we bring in all the tools, help him get better. And, and it was very painful for my mother because she saw what kind of pain he was in, that it seemed unfair to make him suffer so, but we kids would be so disappointed. So we kind of hung in. And I remember being with my father one time, and he's at the end, and he's ripping the oxygen mask off his face, and I'm putting it back on him because I'm the one who knows best. I'm the one that knows you have to get better on this. And he knew he, he, was, he, knew he was dying and he was accepting that. He's like, I don't want this on me anymore. And I would hope that if I were to be in this, this position again, that I would handle it differently. What do you think you would do differently if you could do it over? I think I would say, dad, it's okay for you to go. It's okay. You don't need to stay here just for me, just for us and hug him. I hope that's what I would do. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with John Leland. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly 
at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.